and welcome to History Zine show number 12. A packed show for you this time. There'll be a look at the term Jacobite. There'll be a review of the Stanford University series on Hannibal. And we'll be pushing on with the War of the Spanish Succession. And this time we get to the big battle. We get to the Battle of Blenheim in 1704. But first, I want to talk to anybody who will be in Britain, or more specifically London, on September the 20th and 21st, 2008. Now, there's going to be what's called Open House Weekend that weekend. And one of the places that will be open to the public is Marlborough House in London. Now, this at the moment is the home of the Commonwealth Secretariat. So it's not always available to the public, but they're having a special open day. Lots of places around London will be having an open day this weekend. And I'm going to go down on Saturday the 20th and I want to have a look around. So anybody else that's in London on that date, please feel free to get in touch with me at jim at historyzine.com and we can arrange to meet up. And now I want to start this podcast with a review of a series that's on iTunes, iTunes U, that's iTunes University. And it's a series from Stanford University called Hannibal. Now, it's a bit of a different series than I've reviewed previously. I've generally reviewed ongoing podcasts. This is a single series of eight episodes. And it covers Hannibal from his childhood to its march across the Alps and the battles in Italy and then the legacy he left behind. To give you a sort of flavour of these lectures, I'll read you the description from iTunes. The description goes thus. The course examines Hannibal's childhood and his young soldierly exploits in Spain. Then it follows him over the Pyrenees into Gaul, the Alps, Italy and beyond, examining his brilliance as a military strategist and his legacy after the Punic Wars. Along the way, students will learn about archaeologists' efforts to retrace Hannibal's journey through the Alps and the cutting-edge methods they are using. Hunt has been on foot over every major alpine pass and has now determined the most probable sites where archaeological evidence can be found to help solve the mystery. Now, there's only eight podcasts in this series, but there's a lot of listening in these eight episodes. Each one is about an hour and a half long and some are even longer. As with so many university lectures they suffer a bit from the acoustics of the room and there's a fair amount of clipping which is a real shame as the content is absolutely fascinating the lectures begin with a review of the culture of carthage and the phoenicians there's quite a bit about child sacrifice and the god baal and then we ease our way onto hamilcar barker and then onto his son and into spain gaul etc Quite a lot of this course is very much concerned with Hannibal's famous march across the Alps. It's a march which has fascinated people ever since, and generals such as Prince Eugène and Napoleon have emulated this march, although admittedly without the elephants. There's a guest speaker on one of the episodes who actually did take an elephant over the Alps. In 1958... Albeit it was quite a small elephant called Jumbo, but he did it nonetheless. In this lecture, the speaker tells a delightful story of a group of people from Cambridge University who were just sat around chatting together and decided, hey, it might be quite fun to look for Hannibal's route across the Alps. And somehow they managed to procure an elephant to take with them. It's also wonderfully amateurish, just a case of sitting round, coming up with an idea and saying, just let's do it. And so they did. 
Now, our main lecturer for the series is a chap called Patrick Hunt, and he's crossed the Alps many, many times, taking several Stanford students with him. And he has a number of his own theories about which route Hannibal may have taken, and he explains these at some length. But eventually, the course does move on beyond the Alps to the battles of Trebier, Tresemen and Cannae. But then we return to the subject of the crossing for Lecture 9, as Ed Bonig talks about his 2006 expedition across the Alps. Now, the series finishes with Lecture 10, which is actually podcast number 8, and rounds off the series with a look at the final Roman victory at the Battle of Zama and the destruction of Carthage. He then considers the legacy Hannibal left behind. It's an intriguing series, is this, and I feel indebted to Stanford for making these lectures available to us. The series does need a rather different approach from you than you might have for other podcasts. It's very content-rich and therefore difficult to listen to if you're doing other things. You can be buying a train ticket or trying to cross the road and then you find out you've missed some quite important information and you need to run it back and listen again. I would also like to see the reading list the students had been given for this course. I think the course would be greatly enhanced by reading such people as Polybius and Livy in between listening. In summary, I very much recommend this series. The lecturers are enthusiastic and passionate about their subject. I'm sure they'll infuse you with at least some of their passion. You'll find the series in iTunes in that section on Stanford and Arts and Humanities. I heartily recommend it. And so does Jumbo. Right, now I'm going to do a linguistic history trivia bit. It's slightly different to the usual ones, but I've heard a term on the various forums that I frequent, a term uh, Jacobites or Jacobitism, and there seems to be a huge amount of misunderstanding about who these people are and what they are and where they come from. So let's talk a bit about Jacobitism and Jacobites. First, the myth. They're people in kilts that are noble warriors fighting for some great cause. They're wonderfully romantic figures fighting against oppression and fighting for freedom. The little bit of music for you to get all you Jacobites all stirred up. This is Caledonics. You'll find it on the Podsafe Music Network. First, we'll go through who and what the Jacobites were. Now, to get to grips with Jacobitism, we must reach right back into the depths of time to seek out the Stuart kings of England and Scotland. Now, our first Stuart king is James I of England, and he's also James VI of Scotland, way back in 1603. Now, his mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, and he succeeded Elizabeth I to the English throne. 
Now his reign was mostly quite peaceful, and he was fondly remembered after his death. And then we get Charles I, another Stuart king there. And within a few years of his ascendancy to the throne, Great Britain was embroiled in a bloody civil war between the faction of the Parliament and those of the King. Now, Parliament won this battle. They beheaded the King and established a Commonwealth under the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. Now, he passed many sound laws and he worked with Parliament to create a sort of law-abiding, God-fearing environment in which the country could flourish. These changes, though, were all a bit sudden for the many people and... His methods for enforcing these changes were quite militaristic. Many people have referred to Cromwell's time as Lord Protector as a police state. And, of course, this kind of environment is going to create a lot of resentment. So, upon the death of Oliver Cromwell, the nation was more than happy to welcome in the next Stuart King. And this was Charles II. Now, Charles II came back... Um, we've got a king on the throne again after the Commonwealth, but there's a lot more constraints on what Charles can do. Now, Charles isn't altogether happy about these constraints, but there's not a great deal he can do about it. And he managed to keep himself mostly out of trouble, he managed to keep the country mostly out of trouble, and he passed on his kingship to his brother James II. Now, James's major flaw, we've talked about this before in the podcast, is that he was a Catholic. Well, in the beginning, his religious leanings were very much played down. But, of course, this couldn't last for long. He started flouting the law by employing more and more Catholics in major government positions. And the tide eventually began to turn against him. So, there was a coup. And James's sister Mary and her husband William of Orange, he's the Dutch stadtholder, were placed upon the throne. Now, this is a major change in the British royal line, and it's at this point that Jacobites always go back to when disputing the current monarch. There is a line of kings and queens all claiming their right to the British throne from 1688 right up to the present day. In fact, the current claimant is a chap called Franz Bonaventura Adalbert Maria Herzog van Bayern. Now, Franz is the heir general of the Royal House of Stuart, and thus is regarded by Jacobites as the rightful king of England and Scotland. Jacobites refer to him as King Francis II of England, Scotland, France and Ireland, although it must be said that France himself does not use these titles. Now, France is from the Bavarian Wittelsbach dynasty. We've talked about the Wittelsbach dynasty before, back when we were talking about the Spanish succession, they're a very powerful family within Europe, and they've got links to many of the European royal families. So, getting back to the Jacobites again then, why are they called Jacobites? Well, as usual this, with this type of thing, it goes back to Latin. And the Latin form of the name James, remember James was the last of the Stuart kings, according to the Jacobites, to sit upon the throne of England and Scotland. Well, the Latin form of the name James is Jacobus. So, there you have it. That's the origin of the term Jacobite. Now, let's run through a few of these claimants to the throne, going from James II onwards. After James was deposed, he fled to France, and he set up a royal court there in France, helped out by Louis XIV. Now, James and his supporters plotted continually to reclaim the throne, and Louis XIV gave them all the encouragement he could, because 
Louis the Fourteenth was not at all happy with having William of Orange on the throne of England. This William of Orange had been a sworn enemy of Louis for a long, long time, and was no doubt going to be a thorn in his side. And so, with Louis's help, the Jacobites mounted an invasion upon Ireland to establish a base there from which to attack the British mainland. Unfortunately, this invasion was soundly beaten at the Battle of the Boyne by the forces of William. And so, any hopes for a mainland invasion evaporated there. Now, upon his death, Louis XIV proclaimed James's son, James Francis Edward Stuart, the true King of England and Scotland, and this, of course, was one of the catalysts which encouraged England to enter the War of the Spanish Succession, a subject we've been covering in some detail here during these podcasts. Now, in 1708, James Francis, known to history as the Old Pretender, attempted an invasion of Great Britain, but the ships were beaten back by Admiral Byng who incidentally was the father of the Admiral Byng we talked about several episodes ago. That Admiral Byng was executed for not doing his utmost in the face of the enemy. But this Admiral Byng did a lot better, and he beat back the French fleet, and so that threat evaporated there. Now, in 1714, the Jacobites instigated an uprising in Scotland, and there was a mighty battle at Sheriff Muir, in which both sides emerged battered and much depleted. Both the Jacobites and the government forces claimed this battle as a victory, but the truth was that it was largely indecisive. Now, James Francis finally did land in Scotland, but a year later, in 1715. And it seemed after the incredible losses at the Battle of Sheriff Muir, there was little stomach left for fighting in Scotland. So he was unable to raise the support he needed, and disappointed, he returned back home to France. So... You may be beginning to see uh, a picture of the vision of romance that has come down through the ages. These are all people that are trying to reclaim their rightful throne, or so they say. These are the underdogs fighting against the mighty government forces. And we always love an underdog, it seems. It's the return of the true king and all that romance going right back to the tale of King Arthur and his knights. Anyone with a grievance against the current rulers could look over the sea to see a glowing alternative that would surely set right all the wrongs of the world. But the truth was that British government had turned a corner and Parliament was now much stronger than it had ever been. We can't call it a truly democratic system, but it was much more representative and sympathetic towards the needs of its peoples than was the case during the times of absolutist monarchy and even during the times of the Stuart monarchy. Of course, this will have seemed far from self-evident to the people of the time, who had many and varied grievances against the government. Plus ça change, plus à la même chose, which translates roughly as the more things change, the more they remain the same. Well, after the death of James Francis, the claim to the English and Scottish throne was taken up by his son, Charles Edward Stuart, known to history as the Young Pretender or Bonnie Prince Charlie. Charles had a great deal more success than his father and in 1745 carried the Jacobite uprising all the way from Scotland right down into the heart of England. This match began with the Battle of Preston Pans and then he took the English town of Carlisle which is right on the border of England and Scotland and he marched all the way down to Derbyshire. That's maybe a week or so's march away from London. Now, 
A council was held here, and the decision was made to return to Scotland. The Jacobites had expected to gather vast amounts of support all across England for their cause, but very few people actually did join them. This was always a problem with the Jacobite cause. They were absolutely convinced that almost everyone in England was choking under the weight of government oppression and would rush to their cause. This was partly fuelled by the reports from their agents in England, who were paid from the Jacobite court in France, and so were keen to show that there was support, and so it was worth retaining their services. Now, Bonnie Prince Charlie was bitterly disappointed, but felt he didn't have a large enough army to attack London, and so he turned back. Now, he was pursued back northwards by the Duke of Cumberland and brought to battle on 16th of April 1746, where the Jacobite forces were decisively beaten. Now, this was the Battle of Culloden, and it was the last major battle fought on British soil. Now, Bonnie Prince Charlie fled the battlefield, and despite concerted efforts by the government to apprehend him, he managed to escape. There are many tales of his flight, but... I'll just read you these few lines from a song which captures some of the romance of his escape. Speed, bonny boat, like a bird on the wing, onward the sailors cry, carry the lad that's born to be king over the sea to sky. Loud the winds howl, loud the waves roar, thunderclaps rend the air. Baffled our foes stand by the shore, follow they will not dare though the waves leap soft shall ye sleep oceans a royal bed rocked in the deep flora will keep watch by your weary head many's the lad fought on that day well the claymore could wield when the night came silently lay dead in culloden's field burned are their homes Exile and death, scatter the loyal men. Yet ere the sword cool in the sheath, Charlie will come again. Speed, bonny boat, like a bird on the wing. Onward the sailors cry. Carry the lad that's born to be king over the sea to sky. Now over the next few months, the Jacobite supporters were hunted down. And that was the end of any real hopes of the Stuarts reclaiming the throne. I'm sure there are one or two Jacobites out there who would take issue with me, but I am no lover of the Stuart monarchs, nor of the absolutism of monarchy and divine right. Once James was deposed, the British system of government became the most progressive and enlightened in Europe, and possibly the world at that time. I feel sorry for those who died for the Jacobite cause, but no sorrow for the downfall of that cause. And so there we are, that's my take on the Jacobites and what the word Jacobite actually means. And so now that's the sort of general history bit of History Zine over with, and I want to go on to the War of the Spanish Succession now. Now, we're going to talk about the Battle of Blenheim, We'll talk about Schallenberg first and the Battle of Blenheim. But first, I want to recommend a particular book. I've looked at lots of books while researching this section, but one of them seems to stand out above the others, 
particularly if you're looking at the Battle of Blenheim. And this is a book just about the Battle of Blenheim by a chap called James Faulkner. That's F-A-L-K-N-E-R. I would highly recommend this book if you're interested at all in the Battle of Blenheim. If you're looking to buy the book, if you come to my website, historyzine.com, there's a tab there you can click that says Sources for the War of the Spanish Succession, and you'll find a link to a group of books there, and these are the sources I've been using, and Faulkner's book will be one of those there. There's a link for Amazon.co.uk, and there's a link for Amazon.com. So absolutely, buy James Faulkner's book. It's a great book about the Battle of Blenheim. It's got a lot of detail here that I won't be able to cover in this podcast. I've had to miss some out, otherwise the podcast would be several hours long and it might take me years to actually bring it out. And so on we go with our series on the War of the Spanish Succession. This is a war in the very early 18th century between England and Netherlands and the Holy Roman Empire on one side and Spain and France on the other side and a whole host of allies on each side. We're in a situation now where Marlborough and his troops have marched across Europe. They're in the heart of Germany and they're looking to bring the Elector of Bavaria to battle to chastise him for siding with Louis XIV of France and hoping to sway him across to their side. Now, France, in the meantime, has sent troops to support the Elector of Bavaria, and they were hoping for an invasion of Austria and a smash on the city of Vienna. Austria, at the moment, is pressed on both sides. There's a revolt in Hungary they're having to try and deal with. There's the forces in Bavaria they're trying to deal with. And there's also a campaign they're fighting in northern Italy. So Austria, the Holy Roman Empire, are very hard-pressed at the moment. So, Marlborough has marched across into Bavaria, and the march has been a wonderful success. Everything has gone right, everybody is where they should be. The French forces are trapped on the other side of the Rhine, and Eugène is there, making sure they can't make an easy passage across the Rhine and so support the Elector of Bavaria. Now, Marlborough is in Bavaria, But suddenly he finds his options are a bit limited. He's organised everything all the way there. He's had food supplied at regular points. He's had troops joining him at regular points. Everything has gone beautifully. He's lost very few troops on quite a long and arduous march. It's all gone brilliantly until he gets to Bavaria. Now here he expected a lot of support. Okay, the Emperor sent him troops... Baden sent him troops, Hesse sent him troops, Hanover sent him troops. There's a lot there. But he hasn't been sent the siege train he was promised and he hasn't been sent the food he was promised. It's all getting suddenly to be quite a struggle. Now, despite this, he has to push on. He has to do something. And he he has to think about what does he need to do next. Well, the most vital thing to do at this point is to secure his supply route northeastwards to the parts of Germany that are friendly to the Allied cause. These are Hesse and Hanover. And he also wants to open up an invasion route across the Danube into Bavaria. So he weighs these options up. And many are discarded as being impossible without a siege train and without the food supply that he was promised. So he chooses Donauworth and... As soon as he's chosen this, he advances immediately and 
so surprises the garrison. Okay, the elector has had some idea that he might attack Donauworth, and he sends Daco, a fine Bavarian commander, there to reinforce the place. But he's barely arrived, and Marlborough's on the scene, with his many, many troops. And about six in the evening, he's arrived on the scene, Darko's seen him, and he's probably expecting him to camp for the night, because you just don't fight a battle that late in the day. Well, Marlborough did, and he threw his troops into the fray in absolutely a furious assault. This is not exactly attacking Donauworth itself. This is what you call the Schallenberg Heights. This is overlooking the town of Donauworth, but you have to be able to take the Schallenberg Heights if you're going to take Donauworth. So he throws his troops seemingly recklessly against the defences, and they're absolutely ravaged by musket fire from the Franco-Bavarian defence. More and more infantry is thrown at these defences, and more and more reinforcements are brought in to try and fend off this continuous assault. Now, as it happens, and I, I suspect this was planned for, the western perimeter is severely weakened by this bringing in of reinforcements to fend off this assault. And so the Allied cavalry, the Margrave of Baden, is actually leading the Allied cavalry, and they've come round to that side, and they smash into the defender's flank, completely unexpected, completely unprepared for. Now this, combined with yet another frontal assault by the infantry, finally broke the valiant defence of Schallenberg, and the defenders turned and ran while being chased into the Danube. Of the 15,000 in this garrison, only 3,000 escaped, and the position was taken, huge amounts of powder was captured, three heavy guns, 13 colours, tent, plates, and many other valuables. A fine haul indeed, but at real cost in the lives of men and officers, particularly from the English and Dutch infantry, who had been part of the repeated assaults on the Franco-Bavarian defences. Now the elector is quite shaken. He immediately moves back and holds himself up in the town of Augsburg. This effectively took him out of the reach of Marlborough and the Margrave, as they did not have the required siege engine to besiege such a fortress. In fact, this period after the victory at Donauworth is rather an odd one. There seems to have been no really decisive policy, and Marlborough is much criticised in many books, and indeed in the dispatches written by Prince Eugene at the time for this period, over seeming indecisiveness. It must be remembered that the fine strategy during the march had manoeuvred the situation in that part of the French forces had been drawn away to the other side of the Rhine, and so enabled him to enter Bavaria with superior numbers to Marsan and the electorate of Bavaria. Marsan, by the way, is the Marshal Marsan, who has French forces that are supporting the electorate of Bavaria. Now, the situation couldn't last. Marlborough had already heard that Marshal Tallard was on his way with many more forces, and so the balance of power could now swing the other way, with himself, Eugène and the Margrave being outnumbered in Bavaria. He knew he had about two weeks to try and break or sway the elector before these reinforcements arrived. Now, this is a tall order indeed, and without heavy cannons, his options were limited. Even with heavy cannons, it would usually take much longer to take a reasonably well-fortified town than the two weeks that he had. He decided 
upon the policy of burning Bavarian towns and villages, hoping this would persuade the elector to sign some sort of agreement. This was essentially a, a terrorist tactic, and, of course, must be considered more than a little reprehensible. I wonder if we have any Bavarian listeners out there. Uh, are there folk tales about Marlborough? Is there is there a sort of hatred of Marlborough? I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was after the, the you know the destruction of Bavaria by his forces. I very much suspect he's certainly not viewed as a hero in Bavaria. Having said this, though, it, it seems his policy was a little bit half-hearted. There are letters in which he expresses his severe dislike of this policy. Frankly, it seems that it was the only course open to him at this point. The Margrave of Baden and the Emperor were both very much opposed to this plan, and one must wonder if maybe, maybe one of Marlborough's aims at the time was to persuade them to supply him with the guns and the food that they both promised would be available to him when he entered Germany. Of course, the Emperor had been given a lot of money to provide the siege train and to provide the food. But it seems the Emperor had spent some of that money in suppressing the rebellion in Hungary, something he'd been told that the Netherlands and England did not want him to do. They wanted him to concentrate on the campaign in Bavaria. He'd also sent some of that money to Italy to support the troops in Italy. And he'd also actually sent troops to Italy as well. So, Marlborough has planned everything so that the major thrust, the major battle, is going to be in Bavaria. But the Emperor has dissipated some of those resources into another two areas. I can imagine it will be more than a little frustrating for Marlborough. But he's there now. It's got to go on. So we have a situation here, though, where not much is happening. Tallard has brought considerable French reinforcements to join up with the troops of Marsan and the Elector of Bavaria. Having said that, the Elector of Bavaria has weakened his main force because what he's been doing is sending out detachments throughout the country to defend his own holdings in Bavaria and to try fend off some of the forces that are doing the burnings so that his own apartments, his own lands, don't get too affected by this. Now, this is quite ironic, in fact, because Marlborough had given instructions to his troops not to burn the Elector's own lands, the elector's own estates. This was, it seems, uh, some kind of tactic to turn the people against the elector if they saw their own homes being burned and they saw his estates not being burned, maybe they would hate the elector all the more. It seems a little tenuous to me, but, you know, I suppose Marlborough's got to try some strategy here. So, the elector has sent a lot of his troops out to various estates, so he's forced back there in Augsburg that has now joined up with the French forces, is quite small. And this is going to upset the marshals a little bit. They're going to think, you know, the, the elector is not really taking this situation seriously, and he hasn't got a serious number of troops to face off against the enemy. So now, Prince Eugène hasn't been able to stop Tallard bringing his forces across, and... Prince Eugène is now stationed quite close to the Duke of Marlborough. He's come across because he couldn't stop Tallard, so he's come back into Bavaria. And uh, the, all the forces are beginning to mass up together there. The Margrave of Baden, that's Prince Louis, he's kind of lost interest in the burnings. He never really wanted to do it in the first place. And so he's looking at the possibility of besieging Ingolstadt. Now, all of a sudden, as soon as he's looking at this possibility, the elusive siege train... 
actually seems as if it's going to arrive and it will arrive for the Margrave of Baden, but of course not arrive for Marlborough. Yet again, more frustrations, but you've got to go with it. This is international politics. The Franco-Bavarian force now moved out from Augsburg and decided to go north beyond the Danube. Beyond this movement, there was a lot of argument between the elector and the two marshals as to their next objective. As a compromise, they decided to camp their armies on the broad plain just beyond Hochstadt. They captured some allied outposts at Dillingen and Hochstadt and made camp between the villages of Blindheim and Lutzingen. On the Allied side, the Margrave was still keen to besiege Ingolstadt, and despite the fact that this would weaken the main force, both Marlborough and Eugene encouraged him to do so. Relations between Marlborough and the Margrave had become so fraught that it was considered any future campaigns would go a lot smoother with the Margrave out of the way. He was also considered perhaps a touch too friendly with the Elector of Bavaria, and so there were concerns about his loyalty to the Allied army and their objectives. Prince Eugen and Marlborough joined their forces and moved toward the Franco-Bavarian armies at Blindheim. It should be mentioned here that the village of Blindheim is known in English as Blenheim, so henceforth this is the name I shall use. The French noted the activity and sent out a cavalry reconnaissance, which captured a few Allied pioneers out scouting ahead. These were questioned, and they gave the information that the army intended to retreat north to Nordlingen. It seems this story was swallowed, and somehow they didn't notice that the Allies were actually clearing away for the army westwards, and an advance guard had been sent to Tatfheim to secure the way onto the plain. On the evening of the 12th of August, orders were issued to the rest of the Allied army to move before dawn on the 13th. At 0200 hours, the army began to move forward toward the plain near Blenheim. Between the Allies and the Franco-Bavarian army was a tributary of the River Danube. This was the River Nebel. The Franco-Bavarian troops were in a fairly strong defensive position above marshy ground on the far side of the Nebel and were convinced the Allies would not attack. Even when Tallard spotted Marlborough's troops deploying at seven that morning, he still wrote to Versailles that, although the enemy could be seen in battle array at the head of their camp, it looks they will march today. The local rumour is to Nordlingen. Their strong position and slight superiority in numbers made this assertion very plausible indeed. The prevalent tactics of the age dictated that a commander did not take his forces into battle until he had a significant advantage. So the usual procedure would be to keep manoeuvring until such an advantage could be obtained. There were some in the Allied armies who felt similarly. In fact, we have a quote from the Earl Orkney. This is one of Marlborough's infantry commanders on the subject of attacking that day. He said, Had I been asked to give my opinion... I had been against it, considering the ground where they had been camped and the strength of the army. But his grace knew the necessity there was of a battle. By 9am, much to the surprise of Tallard, Marsan and the Elector, they realised that Marlborough and Eugene intended to give battle, and so began firing their cannons and deploying into battle order. The Elector, Marsan and Tallard had become more and more irritated with each other, and so had chosen not to integrate their forces. This was a factor not missed by Marlborough, and his tactics later in the day 
were to seek to exploit this. Tallard arrayed his troops behind the Nebel, from the Danube at Blindheim to Oberglauheim. Marsan and the Elector were defending between Oberglau and Lutzingen, the Elector being on the far left of the Franco-Bavarian line. Although this was a strong position, there were some in the French army who felt the line was too far back from the Nebel. The Comte de Merode Westerloo, who was serving under Tallard, wrote, Our right wing was on the left bank of the river Danube, with the village of Blenheim some two hundred yards to its front. All the generals of the right wing had quarters there. In front of this village ran a small stream, this was the Nebel, running from its source a mile away to the left. The elector and his men held a position reaching as far as the village of Lutzingen, which contained his headquarters, with the woods stretching away towards Nordlingen, to his front. Before this position was an area of marshy ground, a few hamlets and one or two miles along the little stream. Blenheim village itself was surrounded by hedges, fences, and other obstacles, enclosed gardens and meadows. All in all, the position was pretty fair, but had we advanced a mere eight hundred or a thousand paces farther to our front, we would have held a far more compact position, with our right still on the Danube, and our left protected by woods. Now, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and indeed the marshals had considered this option, but Tallard had decided that the space in front of the stream would make a fine killing ground for his cavalry to utilise, and so overruled the suggestion from Marsan that he should close up to the Nebel. Now, as to Marlborough's tactics, they were quite similar to that which he'd used in the storming of the Schallenberg. He intended to concentrate his assault upon the enemy right wing, drawing off reinforcements to that side. He also had Eugene and the Prince of Anhalt-Dessau on his right flank, keeping up the pressure on the enemy's left. The plan was to draw off the Franco-Bavarian reinforcements to both these areas and then smash through the centre himself, so destroying the enemy line and negating their advantageous position. As at the Schallenberg, this would mean fearsome casualties for those troops engaged in the holding assaults, and a fine balancing act as to when he should commit those forces, which would make the decisive thrust. So, did it work out like this? Well, let's work through the events of the day, and I'll give you times when various events happened, but be warned, different books give different times for the same events. So they're not necessarily 100% accurate. But hopefully this will give you some idea of the chronology of the day and when and where things happened. So I'll work through it nevertheless. 0600 hours. The Count de Merode Westerloo is awakened by his head groom. The head groom comes into the room and says, the enemy are here, the enemy are here. Uh, the Count wakes up and mockingly goes, where, where, you know, here, he says, pointing to a space in the room. The groom opens the doors and the Count can see out onto the plain and there he can see the allied battalions and squadrons marching toward the Franco-Bavarian lines and all too close already. 0800 hours. Some of the French cannons are now in position and are opening fire upon the allied lines. By 0900 hours most of the cannons are operating and doing some damage. 
ten hundred hours, the Elector, Massan and Tallard meet in Blenheim to discuss their battle plan. Ten hundred hours again, Marlborough's infantry, under the command of his brother Charles Churchill, form up facing towards Blenheim and Unterglauheim. Salamander Cutts, on his extreme left, is facing the enemy right and the village of Blenheim. Major General Wood is behind him with 15 squadrons. Now, a quick word here about Salamander Cutts, because he intrigues me. Salamander Cutts is so named because of his predilection for always being wherever the fighting was hottest. He was satirised by the writer Jonathan Swift as being as brave and brainless as the sword by his side. In past campaigns he had been wounded many, many times and even shot in the head at the siege of Namur in 1695. Rather bizarrely, he'd also written a book of poetry called Poetical Exercises back in 1687. A, an interesting man indeed. Anyway, on with the lineup. That's Cuts and Wood on the left and Charles Churchill in the middle. Now, Charles Churchill's infantry in the centre is interleaved with the Prince of Hesse's horse. Now, this was Marlborough's idea, as far as we can tell, and it was a novel and highly effective new use of the combination of cavalry and infantry. Meanwhile, we've also got Colonel Holcroft Blood has been setting up his big guns in various places along the line. The Duke rides along from gun to gun to check their placements and the effectiveness of their fire. The Count of Maraud Westerloo on the opposite side could certainly vouch for the effectiveness of their fire, as the head of one of his horses was taken off in this exchange of fire and two troopers were killed beside him. Apparently, it seems the Count lost 13 of his mounts that day, and finally also the groom who had been supplying him with those horses. Marlborough too came under fire and was covered with dust as Roundshot came rather too close to his horse. He didn't change his own behaviour, but he did order his infantry to lay down so that they might present a slightly less conspicuous target for the French guns. And they all waited there in position for the Prince Eugène to get into his own position on the far right. The Prince Eugène had a lot further to march because he's marching across the battlefield over to the far right, so he's facing off against the enemy left. Meanwhile... They're all still under bombardment, and the chaplains are moving along the line, giving divine service. 12.30 hours. Word reached Marlborough that Eugène was now in position, and so at 1300 he gave the order to advance. Charles was ordered to take his troops across the Nebel, which had already been prepared with pontoon bridges and filled with fascines. Cutts moved to his attack on the village of Blenheim, and Eugène attacked on the right. Cutts' forces attacked Blenheim village with extreme ferocity and despite being beaten back several times kept up a fierce assault. They suffered terrible losses but gradually as their assaults became more and more intense the French commander inside Blenheim, this is the Marquis de Clerambault, pulled in infantry from the surrounding areas to help beat off the attacks. More and more troops were brought into the village to prop up the defence, and as the afternoon wore on, Clarenbolt crammed 
27 infantry battalions into Blenheim and 12 squadrons of dismounted goons. That's around 12,000 men who were now trapped inside the village and had no means of escape. I mean, several times during the day, they, they tried to fight their way out, but they were beaten back every time. Cuts intended to lead in yet another assault on the village, but this order was countermanded by the Duke, who requested that he change to a holding tactic and just ensure he kept the French troops inside the village and therefore out of the battle upon the plain. This meant that the Duke could draw some of the infantry into the centre and leave just 5,000 British and Hessian troops to keep the 12,000 French troops trapped inside Blenheim. In the centre, Churchill's troops crossed the Neville and Tallard sent in the cavalry to sweep them back. This was the famous gendarme, who came sweeping down the slope to push the Allied troops back across the Nebel. Unfortunately, they squandered the advantage of the slope by stopping to discharge their carbines before charging into the Allied lines. Now, so fast do cavalry actions move that this slight pause gave Palm's cavalry squadrons time to move around the infantry battalions and envelop the gendarme on both sides. They were quickly repulsed and turned around fleeing for the rear. A second wave of French cavalry charged and Palm's troops had to withdraw. But this action sent shockwaves through the French commanders. The gendarmes were considered to be elite troops and it had been considered a foregone conclusion that they would be victorious. To see them so convincingly beaten was a bitter pill to swallow indeed. There were, however, tense moments in these first exchanges in the centre, but enough troops managed to get across that they held their ground and now had a reasonably strong position in front of the Nebel. The combination of Allied cavalry and infantry here gave Marlborough's troops a distinct advantage. Not only did the French cavalry have to withstand the disciplined platoon firing of the infantry, but also the shock charges of the cavalry, which burst through the gaps in the infantry battalions, which had been left there for that purpose. And Marlborough didn't like the action of stopping to fire off carbines. In fact, he only gave his cavalry very limited amount of ammunition, and they were only intended to use this on raiding missions. So during battle, they were intended to be used as shock troops and they were charging with their sabres and not stop halfway in. So Tallard in the centre now found his cavalry largely unsupported by his own infantry because much of that infantry had been taken back inside the village of Blenheim in the desperate struggle to defend that village. Tallard sent to Marsan for assistance, but Marsan was being pushed hard by Eugène who sent in his troops over and over and over again. And when the request came, Massan felt unable to lend any assistance to Tallard in the centre. In stark contrast, there was a situation where the Dutch troops were struggling at the village of Oberglauheim, and Marlborough took troops from Charles Churchill and sent a request to Eugene for assistance to overcome the difficulty there. Despite being outnumbered and in desperate straits, Eugène released his troops immediately and the counter-attack from Marsan at Oberglauheim was soon repulsed. 
On the far right of the Allied line, the Prince of Anhalt-Dessau was throwing his Danes and Prussians against the Bavarians in the village of Lutzingen. The position there was very well fortified, and the old Dessauer found himself flung back again and again as the well-commanded Bavarian forces counter-attacked. Eugene too was repulsed and spent a great deal of his time exhorting his troops to return to the fray. So, although both Marlborough's right and left were taking intense casualties, they were keeping the enemy very, very much occupied. 1600 hours. Marlborough sends a message to Eugene that things are going to plan on the left of the field, and if he could keep Marshal Marsin and the Elector of Bavaria occupied on the right, he would now be able to destroy Tallard's cavalry. 1700 hours. Marlborough looks along his lines and realises all is ready for the push forward. He has two lines of cavalry drawn up in front of the infantry, and at his command they all moved steadily forward. The French cavalry were extremely weary after their repeated attempts to push Marlborough's troops back, and when the comparatively fresh Allied troops pushed forward, they had little resistance left. Robert Parker wrote, Our squadrons drove through the very centre of them, which put them to entire rout. All too quickly, many of the French squadrons had turned and were now in headlong flight. The French cavalry did have some infantry support from nine battalions, who had presumably been too far away for Clarenbolt to pull inside the village of Blenheim. Now the cavalry had fled. This infantry was left alone with no support at all. They formed square and fought with desperate valour, but their cause was hopeless, and the guns were brought up to cut them to pieces. The Allied cavalry continued to pursue the French cavalry from the field, and it was here that Marshal Tallard was captured by one of Bothmar's dragoons. Pursuit such as this was one of the main functions of dragoons. They're a strange hybrid force, our dragoons. They can act as infantry or light cavalry. They're used as flanking troops to protect a march, as infantry which can be moved around on a battlefield, or as pursuit troops to destroy the enemy when in flight. And that's exactly what they were doing here. So Tallard was captured and he was brought to sit out the rest of the battle in Marlborough's coach. This rout had not gone unnoticed by the Franco-Bavarian left wing. The absence of Tallard's cavalry in the centre now meant their entire right flank was exposed, and therefore their position had become untenable. The Elector and Marsan withdrew from the field, and due to a mix-up on the Allied side, managed to escape without much interference at all. Marlborough had ordered Hompesh to move to the right and assist Eugène to harry Marsan and the Elector. Eugène and Hompesh both mistook each other for enemy reinforcements, and so much time was lost as they ascertained what was happening and who each side were. Meanwhile, Marsan and the Elector made good their escape with the vast majority of their troops. At the same time, the attack on Blenheim had been resumed, but little headway was being made there. Clarenbolt was nowhere to be found in the village, and it was later found that he had fled and managed to drown himself in the Danube, so that Marquis de Blanzac was now in charge. Earl Orkney sent in Colonel Blelville to parley with the Marquis, and by nightfall he had agreed to surrender the village without terms. Ten 
thousand French soldiers there laid down their arms and surrendered their colours, apart, that is, from the proud regiment de Roy, who burnt theirs rather than hand them over. Marlborough was still in pursuit of the fleeing French horse, but paused to scribble a note which he handed to Colonel Daniel Park to take to his wife, Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough. Park wrote swiftly to London, handed the letter to Sarah, who urged him onwards to show it to the Queen. Now, this letter I've actually seen. It's in the Great Palace at Blenheim, and it was scribbled on the back of a tavern bill, and momentous document though it is, it is a very tatty piece of paper indeed. Nevertheless, it is stunning to be able to see the connection across the centuries, there in Blenheim Palace, on a rather tatty little piece of paper. The letter reads, I have not time to say more, but beg you will give my duty to the Queen and let her know that her army has had a glorious victory. Monsieur Tallard and two other generals are in my coach, and I am following the rest. The bearer, Colonel Park, will give her an account of what has passed. I shall do it in a day or two by another more at large. So there, tired and weary, we leave the combatants at Blenheim, and I must leave all of you. Until next time, bye for now. Hey!